Chapter Six of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter Six, London River. Once on deck, I found that the loading had begun, and from each sack of cement that careered down into the hold came a cloud of white dust. And glad that little John slumbered in her bunk. I went and sat up in the stern. There was plenty to watch on board and off. Pompous little tugs, low-lying barges, weary and worn-looking iron merchantmen, and odoriferous little refuse steamers, derisively dubbed beef-tea boats, or cemetery boats by the sailors. All these kept me interested and amused. Presently a tug flying the blue and white mission flag came alongside of us, and gazing down into it I saw a fat little cleric and an attendant sailor getting out a rope ladder. On catching sight of me, the little cleric took off his hat, remarking to his helpmate, Some ladies' papers, if you please, James. Those madames and the English churchwoman. I looked wildly round for help, and made the terrifying discovery that the ship was seemingly deserted. The cement loading had just finished, and the men had apparently packed themselves into the hold with the sacks. The Solferino might have been a ship of the dead. Just as I was inveighing against the cowardice of the other sex, the mate of the chuff appeared to my rescue, and at the same moment the little cleric by a superhuman effort, maneuvered his leg over the rail. He advanced nervously towards Mr. Simpson. "'Is the captain aboard?' he asked. "'Cap'n's ashore. So's the mate,' quoth Mr. Simpson. "'I'm the mate o a much tidier ship than this, but she's lyin' in another harbour.' The little cleric advanced on the reluctant son of Simp, and wrung his hand. "'And how are you, my friend?' he asked. The mate drew up his scrubby little person before replying, with ineffable solemnity. "'Ansome in person, sir, though poor in pocket.' The sky-pilot laughed the laugh of propitiation, and on hearing that we came from Cornwall, ventured a remark to the effect that all Cornishmen were fine men. "'As to the men,' said Mr. Simpson, still speaking in a company drawl them nothin out o the way men's men but our cornish women them the rarest in the world good-looking are they asked the sky pilot can you need to ask me that demanded the mate reproachfully with a lofty wave of the hand towards me when you can set eyes on the young lady there the poor little cleric blushed nervously, and began something to the effect that, of course if the young lady bore the standard of beauty, it certainly was very high. When I took pity on him and strolled away to the forecastle, where I commandeered the bosun and the chief engineer, and made them come and talk to the gratified sky-pilot, he was a well-meaning, guileless soul, and the men treated him respectfully but the shyness on both sides was embarrassing, and we were all glad when the mission tug panted off on another errand 
and left us to the illustrated papers. And I may mention in passing that Madame was read with great interest before the mast, especially the advertisements. We were now waiting for the pilot who was to see us up London River, and I went into the forecastle head and sat on the capstan engine till two seamen came to wind in the anchor, and then I watched the second engineer oil the slewing gear of the crane, which he said was chirpin' like a bloomin' canary bird, or like my whistle. Didn't you like it, that you've hidden yourself these two days? I wheeled round to see the piper standing behind me, a haggard boy he looked by daylight, unmistakably a gentleman through all his shabbiness. Evidently he had not detected that it was I who coaxed my little Nan Vero into giving him regular meals, only charging me the actual cost of them. I smiled at him in my relief, and then saw he was brandishing a telegram. Man is an egotistical creature, he said. I want congratulations. You have mine. Is it permitted to ask what on? Oh, I don't suppose you'll call it much, but I happen to be on my uppers. I'm a strolling player, and lately it's been nothing but strolling. This is from an old boss of mine, Haggett, who runs a travelling theatre, and he offers me gentleman lead, which means I may be called upon to play Hamlet one night, Charles Peace the next, and what's his name in the murder in the red barn the night after. But the prospect of anything to do at all excites me. I do congratulate you, I said. I only wish I could have a stroke of luck like it. You? What on earth do you mean? Taking two sixpences out of my purse, I shook it upside down. That's what I mean. These will tip Nanvero, and then I'm cleared out. Good heavens, who would have guessed it? His good-looking boyish face was very grave. Have you anywhere to go when you get to town? I told him about Barbara, and he nodded. Then, look here, he said, if you can't get anything else to do, would you like me to tackle Haggett? It's a beastly life, going round in caravans, and it's no place for you. But when one hasn't a sou, I know what that means. And Mrs. Haggett's careful of the girls. Do you think I should be good enough? Of course, I've often acted, but only in amateur things. Heavens, you should see Haggett's damsels. Not an H to their names, raw red hands, and waists up under their armpits. It will be very kind of you. If I can't get anything else, I shall be very glad. It would keep me going for some time anyway. That's settled then, he cried gaily. Shall we swear eternal friendship? Certainly. For how long? Oh, till policeman Providence moves us on in opposite directions. We will swear by my whistle. My name's Vivian Lovell, and mine's Peter Wimperus. Peter Tressilian Wimperus. Humorous of it really to be Peter, isn't it? It sounds too perfect to be possible. Does the Tressilian mean you're a Cornishman? 
I'm Cornish, of course. So am I, on my mother's side, which I hold to be the more important. See, there's the pilot coming, and up goes the red and white pilot flag. The pilot, a crimson-faced, pompous individual, was rowed alongside and a ladder flung out. Mr. Simpson leant against the bulwarks, with his hands in his pockets, and watched the proceedings cynically. Never mind helping the pilot lads, he observed, pipe in mouth, to the men steadying the boat. He can swim aboard, he can. You learn to keep a civil tongue in your head, my man, snapped the pilot, growing redder than ever. Now we're properly introduced. We can watch the world go by together, as we go up the river, said I to my piper. Come up on the bridge with me. The captain won't mind a bit. He's a great friend of mine. We were rather a crowd on the bridge, what with the man at the wheel, the pilot, the captain, and ourselves. But except for the superior airs of the pilot, we were all very friendly disposed. When the pilot rapped out his orders, the Solferino's captain, who was a thin, dark, sardonic-looking individual, would repeat them with an exquisite mimicry of tone, winking the while at me. Easer don a trifle, snapped the pilot. Easer don a trifle. Right, sir, repeated the captain, working the telegraph obediently. Past the factories and wharves, and the serried ranks of gaunt black coal cranes, past the outward-bound ships, some with red-turbaned blue-clad laskers, standing on their decks, past the old-world river-ports, with little Georgian houses going down into the water, past all the starkness and bustle and magic of the pageant of London River we went, and the piper and I laughed and argued, as though we had not a care in the world. Once he looked at me with a whimsical flaunt of his tawny brows, saying, It's good to be young, isn't it? Lord, how out of it other people are! How old are you? Twenty-three. And you, Mademoiselle Sanssouci? Twenty-one, which means I'm ten years older than you because I'm a girl. Look, do you see that lettering? Old Rat Wharf. I'm longing to see Barbara again. If she asks if there were a stewardess on board, I shall say, oh, a charming person called Nan Vero. But I don't see Barbara. And I craned over the rail, gazing anxiously at the wharf. Barbara's inordinately tall figure and shock of yellow hair were certainly not gracing either the wharf or the narrow lane leading away from it. I collected my things while the captain and pilot were going through the customary courtesies of whiskies and soda in the saloon, and then all those of the Chuff Company, who had come so far in the Solferino, assembled at the K-plank to see me off. They were dear creatures, all of them Cornishmen, except one of the stokers, a mere lad known as Irish Jack, and they all had one thing in common, a thing which experience has told me is inherent in their sex. Not a man on the ship but had told me of his personal affairs. 
I had heard of the illness of the captain's wife, and the cleverness of his daughter, of the mate's courtship, of Irish Jack's girl, who had consumption, and of many other things beside, which all tended to foster in me that profound and true piece of feminine philosophy, men are kittle-cattle. There was no news of any claimant to little John, so I took matters into my own hands, and leaving my name and Barbara's address with the captain, I was rowed ashore, Peter opposite me, and little John, now my sole possession, on my lap. I expect Barbara's besieging Lloyd's, I suggested. I expect so, said the piper, but I don't like to leave you till I know. So we'll go and look her up together, that is, if you don't mind. We walked through the minories and then took a motor bus to Chelsea, the piper having a shilling concealed about his person. My heart beat with apprehension as we mounted the stone stairs to Barbara's flat in Beaufort Street, and I pressed the bell with a tremulous finger. After ringing many times I went in search of the hall porter, and learned from him that Miss Vining was abroad, doing a rest cure, and that her letters were not being forwarded. I thanked the man, and the piper and I walked on to the embankment in silence, into the gardens he took me, and we sat down on a bench, and I gazed blankly at Carlyle's unresponsive back. The high hopes to which the sea-life had strung me were rudely broken. Was it for this I had refused Harry? I asked myself the question sternly, but merely because I felt it the right and practical thing to ask. As a plain matter of truth, I was very little cast down. Not for nothing does the wanderlust grip one, and the light-hearted philosophy of salt water is born of something too deep to be easily mastered. My mind was a blank for the time being, but it was quite a bright little blank. Miss Lovell, said the piper, yes? I have nothing in the ring or watch-line left. Have you? I held out my little gold half-hunter. I have this. It was a present from father. Do you mind pawning it? His voice was very gentle. You can soon get it back, you know. I only wish there were anything of mine. But all that went long ago, and I haven't enough money left to take us to Haggett's, I'm afraid. He's out Uxbridge way, you know and anyway you'll want a little to go on with. If you don't mind doing that, then we'll go to Haggett's together. He'll be just hopping mad to have you as soon as he sees you. I shall dun both of you for a commission. Peter Piper, it's most awfully kind, but how can I be such a bother to you? And if one looks at it as a man of the world, Little John makes another mouth to feed. Oh, if that's all. Will you come on this adventure with me, princess? I'm a shabby knight, but to paraphrase the poet, a poor thing, but your own. Yes, I'll come. Peter Wimpers took off his hat, and we shook hands solemnly. Then we bowed to Carlyle, 
and together passed out of the garden and set off on our pilgrimage to the pawn-shop. End of chapter 6